0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about lichens. That's right. Uh, I'm excited for this one because uh, lichen are a
1: a type of life form that are, are easy to take for granted. But at the same time are in more places than you think and are, of course, far more complicated and mysterious, uh, you know, compared to whatever your sort of offhand thoughts might be about them. And we're continuing to learn more about them uh,
0: just year by year. Yeah, I was just talking to Rachel a few minutes ago and uh, she was not actually aware that a lichen is not a solitary type of organism, but in fact a composite organism made of other organisms. Uh, and the, I was trying to come up with an analogy, like, you know. I- what do you use using macroscopic life? And a and lichen in a way is kind of like if you had like a human being or a bear or something sewn to a tree and they were just helping each <laughs> other out, except it, it gets even more complicated than that because it wouldn't just be based on uh, some recent research. It wouldn't just be a bear and a tree. It'd be like a bear and a tree and maybe some other types of vines and things like that.
1: Yeah. It, it, it's really one of these um, things in nature that d- defies, uh, you know, our easy understanding of, of what life even is. Mm-hmm. Like what does it mean to be a species? Because we've touched, uh, you know, on the, the composite aspects of, say, even human biology, that we depend on microbes living inside us, etc. But lichen is it's like a more pronounced expression of this same idea.
0: There's actually a wonderful quote from an article that we're going to reference in this episode by Ed Yong, uh, one of my favorite science writers Mm -hmm. in The Atlantic, that's about uh, some recent discoveries in lichen biology. And Ed writes, quote, when we think about the microbes that influence the health of humans and other animals, the algae that provide coral reefs with energy, the mitochondria that power our cells, the gut bacteria that allow cows to digest their food, or the probiotic products that line supermarket shelves, all of that can be traced to the birth of symbiosis as a concept. And symbiosis, in turn, began with lichens. Yeah, that's, that's a great quote from a great article that we'll come back to again here. Uh, But I understand you also have a little poetry for us here, Joe. Oh, well, yeah, Robert, you were asking if there were any great poems about lichens, and I couldn't think of any at first, but I did come across this uh, actually fantastic poem by Jane Hirschfield. That I'm not going to read in full, but the uh, the title is for the Lobaria Usnia, Witch's hair map lichen beard lichen ground lichen shield lichen, which is great because the title itself is almost like a line from a Walt Whitman poem, but it has mm-hmm. that Walt Whitman spirit. It's very it's very uh, propulsively enthusiastic about the world, and so in this poem she speaks about uh, about lichen and. She calls them a marriage of fungi and algae, chemists of the air, changers of nitrogen unusable into nitrogen usable. And then uh, her last couple of uh, paragraphs in this poem go like those nameless ones who kept painting, shaping, engraving, unseen, unread, unremembered, not caring if they were no good, if they were past it rock wools, water fans, earth scale, mouse ears dust, ash of the woods, transformers unvalued, uncounted, cell by cell, word by word, making a world they could live in.
1: That's really great and that that comes that that, that kind of gets into something we'll touch on later too about this idea that lichen or some of the the first settlers of new lands you know that they are um they're the first to emerge on volcanic
0: soils and so forth, yeah, and I like how she compares them to sort of like unknown and unrecognized artists who in mm-hmm. a way by by laboring away producing say say poetry or paintings or things that you know most people might never know the names of the authors and and the artists who created these things, but in doing so they create a culture, yeah. And they make an environment that people can inhabit, the same way that that lichens sort of like create an ecosystem within themselves.
1: Yeah, uh, another thing I love about this poem is that it reminds me of uh, college poetry class exercises where <laughs> our, um, our our uh, our teacher and I remember I had a I had a wonderful teacher. Uh, I had more than one wonderful teacher in in college poetry classes, but I specifically remember. Um, uh, my teacher, uh, Marilyn Callett, would have us go out and and roam around, find something natural and write a poem about it, you know, which I think is a great exercise uh, um, you know in in creativity uh, but it also is perfect for lichen because I feel like I've always found something at least soothing about moss and 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 especially lichen mm-hmm. uh, and indeed something that that inspires poetry on some level. Even if you never actually write it, it kind of forces a little poetic energy in the head. Uh, Because I remember as a child, I loved like touching varieties of lichen and moss. You know, we go out and scramble around on the rocks. And when you scramble around on the rocks, you're always finding, uh, you know, remarkably new to you alien life, little red... um, uh, uh uh those little red arachnids uh, uh that are uh, that are roaming around and then also all you know different types of lichen sometimes beautifully colored uh i also love that lichen always had this this kind of miniature world feel to them, something that was probably compounded by the fact that my dad kept some miniature railroad dried out lichen uh, that, that he would use for like basing model tank kits and that sort of thing, like little dried out lichens that you could put in, in a miniature environment and pretend that they were you know,
0: shrubbery or even trees. That's really interesting because it also connects uh, with a very fond childhood memory that I have, which was that Every Christmas, my family would get out this little decorative tabletop manger scene, which mm-hmm. I have to admit I thought of kind of like you would you would imagine a GI Joe playset that's got the fortress or the base and then the action figures that can inhabit it and I played mm-hmm. with it in the same way. I would have like fights on the roof of the barn and all that, uh, but so it was a little wooden barn set and it had. These uh, plastic figurines of, of course, Mary and Joseph and the sheep and the and the cows and the wise men or the magi and the shepherds. And then the wooden barn set had a kind of lichen-like material all over the roof, I guess, for that rustic Bethlehem feel. I don't know if it was actually alive, but I recall it, it felt very lifelike. So it may have been at some actual dried out lichen or, or maybe actually moss-like material. I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, this is interesting because in, in Christian theology, Jesus is said to have a triple nature. And in, in other ways, too, like even going back to medieval times, there are expressions of Jesus as having this dual nature of both masculine and and, uh, and the feminine. Uh, but, but in many ways, uh, Jesus is a composite being, so it's perfect that he's in there uh, amid the lichen. Oh, I like that very much. Yeah, the lichen theology. <laughs> Now in terms of of just how widespread lichen are uh, it's it's really amazing. I've read it estimated that 6% of earth's land surface is covered in lichen and I've also seen this number cited as 7%. But either way you shake it that's a lot of lichen. Uh, I think it's an it's an it's a type of life that we often think of just uh, occupying the cracks here and there, the rocks here and there. We don't think about just how much lichen there is in the world. Uh, But one particular researcher who we'll we'll come back to much later in the episode, uh, a Lycan researcher by the name of Jinpeng Huang, uh, in a a paper that I'll cite uh, uh, later on, he wrote... Lichens are everywhere. If you go on a walk in the city, the rough spots or gray spots you see on rocks or walls or trees, those are common crust lichens. On the ground, they sometimes look like chewing gum. And if you go into a more pristine forest, you can find orange, yellow, and vivid violet colors. Lichens are really pretty. I think he's kind of selling them short with that last phrase. But uh, we, it's hard to follow up, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the poet with the scientist. But I think there's a lot of poetry
0: uh, with what Wong has to say here. Well, sure. And, and you do really do find a, a, an amazing aesthetic diversity within the lichen world. Uh, for example, there's a type of lichen that uh, figures into a paper that we're going to talk about later that produces a, a, a toxin called vulpinic acid, but it mm-hmm. gives the lichen this beautiful yellow-green color that makes me want to eat it, which is exactly what I should not do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some lichen uh, are are toxic. <laughs> we'll we'll
1: touch on that as well. Um, one of the other crazy things about lichen is that you will you will find them growing on every continent on Earth, and and they're important species. They they grow on soil, rock, and bark, uh, but also on buildings or even barnacles. As uh, James Walton points out in Lichens of the Arctic for the National Park Service, they'll even grow on mountaintops and nunataks, which are the exposed rock outcrops of ice fields. Uh, So they, they really thrive in some some otherwise kind of desolate or challenging environments. Mm-hmm. And and wherever they are, they provide important food, shelter, and nesting material. They're important ecological players for hydrological and mineral cycles.
0: Oh, yeah. Arctic lichen stores are uh, specifically what's known as reindeer lichen or sometimes reindeer moss are a very important food source for migrating caribou, I think, especially during the winter. Uh, and the fact that the word moss comes up, I think it's important to mention that that lichens are often... Uh, associated somehow with moss. Many types of lichen are called types of mosses, for example, reindeer moss, which is a lichen. But in scientific terms, lichen and moss are, are totally different types of organisms because moss is one type of organism. Moss is a plant, whereas lichen are living alliances of fungi enmeshed with tiny photosynthetic organisms. For example, algae, which are plants, or cyanobacteria, which are bacteria but which make food the same way plants do by photosynthesis.
1: Yeah, sometimes you'll you'll hear discussion of lichen in terms of lichenized fungi, um, which which is, which is maybe a little more precise way of thinking about it. Because again, it just kind of bucks traditional understanding that we're not looking at a single species; we're looking at a composite.
0: Yes, though it's interesting how certain composites can behave like species in themselves. Yeah. Like they have like certain combinations of uh, what's called the photobiont, the part of the lichen that, that does photosynthesis, and the mycobiont, the major fungal components of the lichen, in certain combinations have particular characteristics that can be studied like the characteristics of an individual species –
1: yeah now in terms of the the species count uh I've, I've seen a number cited as high as like twenty thousand different known species of lichens. One of the more recent sources I looked up though puts it more at uh, thirteen thousand five hundred uh, Either way, a lot of lichens out there uh in the world now uh we should we should probably back up a little bit and point out that there was a time when scientists thought lichen were plants. Uh, later on, as Ed Young points out in this uh, wonderful 2016 Atlantic article titled, How a Guy from a Montana Trailer Park Overturned 150 Years of Biology, <laughs> uh, and we'll get to the details of that headline in a bit, but uh, Young points out that in 1868, a Swiss botanist named Simon uh, Schwindener revealed the dual or composite nature of, of um, uh, lichen, uh, but... He believed that the fungus had, quote, un, had, quote, enslaved the algae. And this would, of course, prove not to quite be the case. Now, a lot of you are probably listening to this and you already heard us mention the, the idea of there being not two but three components uh, in a lichen. That, that might come as a shock to you, because for a long time, uh, post-Schwindener, that's, that's what we thought. Uh, you, pro- you may have learned this growing up. Uh, and in fact, you'll probably see it in a lot of not-so-old documentaries, um, saying, you know, it's, it's like, a, to use a comic book scenario, it's like a Venom and Eddie Brock, you know, the, the symbiont and the human, they come together, and then they become the comic book uh, superhero slash villain.
0: Yeah, I think this used to be known as the the dual hypothesis. There's two species, they come together, and that's what the lichen is. But it turns out that there, there may be more parties involved, and there often are.
1: Yeah. So for about 150 years, yeah, we thought lichen consists of a dual mutual relationship between an alga and a fungus. Uh, you get the best of worlds, right? The alga is, photos- is the photosynthesizing partner or the photobiont, and uh, the fungus is the uh, mycobiont, which makes up most of the bulk of, the, uh,
0: of what we see. It's composed of interwoven fungal filaments. And I think typically the idea is that the fungal element supplies stuff like structure, uh, physical protection, shelter, Mm -hmm. minerals, and water, whereas the photobiont, whether that's something like cyanobacteria or a plant like an alga, uh, that that provides the sugars. It turns the, the sunlight and the carbon dioxide into the sugars that feed the system. Now there were uh, there ultimately ended up being problems with this
1: interpretation um and of course part of it would be that we would ultimately find out it's not just two things but this was revealed when say scientists would uh would try bringing two identified varieties of fungus and algae together to try and grow lichen in the lab uh something seemed to be missing it was almost as if there was a third component that was not present that was necessary uh for this um this uh, combination
0: to take place Yeah, it was not easy to to incubate lichens from their component species in the lab, at least not as we understood their component species. But then in 2016, so very recently, um,
1: a study was published in the journal Science from researchers at the University of Montana working together with colleagues from Austria, Sweden, and Purdue University. And they found that some of the world's most common lichen are indeed composed not of two partners, but three. And in this particular study, uh, they were looking at two closely related species of lichen in
0: western Montana, one toxic to mammals and the other not. Yeah, the toxic one is the one that makes that poison I referred to earlier a vulpinic acid. The one that makes the vulpinic acid is is that gorgeous yellow-green color and the one that doesn't make it is kind of a, a brown color. Uh, apparently, lichens containing vulpinic acid have at least allegedly been used to poison wolves in the past. So you might bait some meat with vulpinic acid lichen in order to, to kill the wolves, I guess, if you were trying to do that. Uh, don't kill wolves, folks.
1: Yeah, but uh, it is interesting we were able to work some, uh, some lichens into our lichen episode
0: here. Oh, I see. As in Rise of the Lichens. Oh, yeah. I got to share. Before we recorded this, I was trying to Google horror movies about lichens to see if there were any. Like spelling Mm -hmm. it the correct way: l i c h e n. uh, But it was just bringing up underworld verse stuff, which apparently is full of l y c a n's that are uh, that are their werewolf buddies.
1: Yeah, Google at times uh, and other search engines refuse to believe that you're you're actually searching for lichens, which uh, I, I think is a bit presumptuous. Uh, I looked around a little bit too, and I, I could not find any lichen-based uh, horror films. But I, this is interesting: um, the film or film adaptations of *The Day of the Triffids*, uh, the novel by John Wyndham. Uh, a lot of people probably know this one because there's, a, there's there are killer plants in this uh, book and in the movies that are based on it. But Wyndham also wrote a book. uh, I was reading, I have not read this, but he has a 1960 book titled Trouble with Lichen. And it's about um, a discovery that some sort of unusual strain of lichen can be used to uh, slow down the aging process and enable people to live uh, for centuries. And then there's apparently a lot of speculation
0: in the novel about how this would affect uh, society. Well that's actually interesting because there is a lot of research into secondary metabolites produced by lichens as possible uh, as possible candidates for use in biotechnology and medicine you know lichens produce all kinds of interesting compounds that are of uh, of great interest to I think well, what's the term they might be called like bioprospectors Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's also my understanding there have been
1: some uh, studies of certainly post uh, in the period after this book uh, came out that have looked at potential anti-aging drugs that could be made from lichen. So uh, I don't know. uh, Interesting topic. uh, One perhaps we'll have to come back to in a future episode if everybody gets lichen
0: fever from this one. Well, in fact, even a minute ago, I was talking about that poison vulpinic acid that is made by mm-hmm. one of the lichens that's uh, in the study. And even vulpinic acid itself has been the subject of a study about treating uh, atherosclerosis, I think. Yeah.
1: So uh, let's, let's get back to those two uh, lichens from the, the study, though. Again, okay. one of them uh, is, um, uh, is toxic to mammals. The other is not. But here's the thing. Previous DNA studies had ruled that the two species were actually identical. And it was unknown why one was toxic and the other was not. And this was seen in other lichen as well, uh, with other cases in which two types of lichen had the exact same symbiotic partners, but differed wildly in appearance and chemistry. Hmm. So what was up? So enter then University of Montana postdoctoral researcher Toby Spreebel, who is uh, now, I believe, with the University of Alberta, I think, uh, but he was the research lead on the study, and it was uh, apparently, you know, quite a, a groundbreaking uh, study, uh, you know, using a lot of new technology and teaming up with. It wasn't just um, uh, Spreebel here; he was teaming up with a, a very talented team, uh, including uh, U.M. Uh, this University of Montana microbiologist, John McCutcheon, uh, who had worked with a lot of insect symbiosis uh, studies in the
0: past. All right, so how do we get to that trifold nature?
1: Okay, so what they did is they did uh, RNA analysis and found two fungal species in the test lichens. And they found that the toxic lichen contained more of it. The secondary fungus this would be the third component
0: uh, of, the, uh, of the lichen, turned out to actually be a yeast. Yeah, so the original assumption was that these lichens were composed of a partnership between the photobiont and then the mycobiont was believed to be entirely represented by this group called the uh, ascomycetes, which is a, a certain type of fungus. But instead, what they found is there were a bunch of other fungus genes being activated that belonged to a group known as the basidiomycetes.
1: Yeah, and and so one the crazy thing here is okay, you hear about this and you think, okay, well, they found a really interesting pair of lichen in Montana. Well, it doesn't stop there, though, because they started testing lichen from around the world. And I mean from around the world, including, uh, like, Antarctic um, uh, varieties. And they revealed that this was not an isolated phenomenon. And uh, in the words of McCutcheon, it was all, quote, hiding in plain sight for more than 100 years. Uh, So uh, it it really did shake up everything we thought we knew about lichen. Even ruined some perfectly good poems.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, because the poem... Well, I mean, I don't know if the poem is totally ruined, but yeah, the Jane Hirschfield poem does sort of envision the lichen as a partnership between two, when in fact, it seems now that many lichens are a partnership between at least two and include uh, other elements as well for example, this yeast. And so when you look down at the microstructure of a lichen, what's often going on is that it's kind of loaf-shaped. And then in the interior of the loaf, you've got a lot of fungal fibers. And then on the exterior of the loaf, you've got this sort of crust, the structural cortex that has, of course, the photobiont element in there, which is doing the photosynthesis. But then it also has these yeast elements in the crust. And so what are they doing there? What, what purpose does the yeast serve? Well, I think in a lot of cases, it's not entirely clear yet.
1: Yeah, based on uh, certainly based on the, the, the writings of the time, and I, and I think uh, this holds true to today, is that it's still kind of an open question what this, these new third partners are necessarily doing. Uh, a lot of research uh, is, is, is ongoing and is still yet to be done to figure out exactly how the lichen really works in light of this revelation.
0: In the world just almost always more complicated than you thought? Yeah.
1: Yeah, you push through one door and then you just find out that there's another one that was just, just a little
0: uh, uh, further away than you were able to, to, to glimpse. Yeah. Well, should we take a break and then come back to talk about uh, some lichen history? Oh, let's do it. All right, we're back. So, uh, you know, an important question to
1: ask is how long have, uh, have lichens been around? Well, it's a it's a it's a more difficult question to answer uh, than you might think, uh, because certainly the oldest uh, for sure fossil lichen data uh, goes back to the early Devonian uh, 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 period. This would have been in about 400 million years ago. And we have this uh, evidence from a sedimentary deposit called uh, the Rhiney Chert uh, unearthed near Aberdeen, Scotland. Now to call back to a past episode, uh, uh, the Devonian was the age of uh, prototaxites and other strange land flora. So this is one of those those periods in uh, in Earth's history where it's, it''s a it's an interesting exercise to just try to imagine yourself standing on those strange
0: soils. Well, yeah, the Devonian was the age of fishes, but I think it was also the time when we think that the the dry land of Earth was first significantly populated by by plant life, right? Right, right. So, you know,
1: so we have fossil evidence of lichen from this time. And, the, you know, the question is, okay, well, when did lichen emerge? Now, one thing to stress about all this is that fossil record of lichen is not all that compelling. Most lichen-dominated habitats, such as tundras, deserts, mountaintops, they don't produce a lot of fossils. And of course, we also have to remember that the fossil record itself is inherently incomplete. Yeah. Not everything fossilizes. And, and, and as it turns out, lichen are, are less prone to fossilization.
0: Yeah, the fossil record is not a clear indication of what existed. It uh, often is biased in favor of what kinds of things get fossilized easily and what, you know, there are certain steps that you have to go through in order to get fossilized. You have to often get buried quickly after death. In certain types of soil and uh, chemical soil conditions, so it's it's a finicky process.
1: Yeah. Now there there are some fossils from between 2.2 and 2.7 billion years ago that have at least in the past been interpreted by some as being lichenized organisms, but it's nothing that everyone agrees on. So um, so we can't re- we can't really date, date it back that far. Um, but lichen have certainly existed for hundreds of millions of years. Uh, but we used to think that they were even older, that they were perhaps even the earliest land organisms. And this this has long been the conventional wisdom on lichens, and it uh, matches up with how they are frequently observed to behave on our own world today. Um, lichen is often documented as an early colonizer of new land. And again, they're capable of popping up in some really rugged conditions. Again, you know, mountaintops, bits of, of rock poking out of the frost, that sort of thing. Um... So, you know, it seems to match up with what we see. Uh, one, one example I came across to give like some, some, some sort of, um, uh, you know, human uh, level, um, uh, you know, timestamps. The volcanic island of Surtsey uh, emerged in 1963, and by 1970, lichens were found growing there. Uh, so I think that provides, you know, sort of a rough timeline for how this sort of thing might occur, uh, not in the archaic sense, but in,
0: you know, in our modern world. Right, because at least in the modern world, you already have lichen symbiosis that exists. It doesn't have to evolve anew, it just has to colonize the land, but it does colonize the land quite well. Yeah. Now, the
1: most recent evidence, interestingly enough – Suggest that that this idea of lichen as the the, the first colonizer of uh, of new earth, uh, that this is not quite the case. I was reading a, a wonderful 2019 New York Times article by Johanna Klein on this, uh, and uh, basically, in the, the idea here is that lichens may have made their way onto land some 100 million years after ferns and other vascular plants. And interestingly enough, this actually matches up, uh, uh, you know, to the extent that we can compare these two things with uh, data from Circe, uh that uh, volcanic island, because vascular plants actually popped up there by 1965. That's just two years after it emerged. And mosses by 1967. But, but to be clear, hmm. we do observe lichens filling the role of first settlers in environments. So it's, it's not like it doesn't occur. Uh, but, uh, uh, but anyway, based on the, the more recent evidence, it seems that, that lichens would have followed ferns and other vascular plants on to uh, uh, the, the primordial earth.
0: Yeah, and it seems especially apt to happen in certain types of extreme environments where lichens are more well-adapted than plants would be on their own. For example, Arctic tundra.
1: Yeah. One way of looking at it, and this was certainly part of the the older interpretation, is that lichen would grow where plants could not, and they would make the environment more hospitable than for vascular plants to move in. Okay, so that was the old theory, but maybe that might not always be the case. That's right, because in 2019, you had this study – uh, from uh, Nelson et al., published in Geobiology, that pushes the evolution of lichen to 250 million years ago. But they also argue that different fungi developed their uh, alga hugging habits independently and didn't inherit it from one main ancestor. But there still remains a lot to be done in the, in the genomic study of lichen. But, but still, it does seem to point towards a, uh, a version of history in which uh, lichen follows the, the, uh, the vascular plants, follows the ferns. All right. Now, th- this is all kind of a, a setup to the, the main question I had and the, the main paper that really caught my interest here revolving around this question. How did lichen fare when the dinosaurs died 66 million years ago in the KT extinction event?
0: This is a really interesting question because we've discussed on the show before the role of uh, fungi by themselves in the Mm -hmm. aftermath of the KT extinction. Specifically, the the hypothesis that fungi may have played a role in the evolving primacy of mammals in the food chain after the KPG extinction, because if you, you have this period where um, where much of the sunlight is being blocked out. And so you have this Earth that's just full of dead, rotting plant and animal matter. What's doing really well in a place full of dead, rotting animal and plant matter, it's fungus, right? Fungus is yeah. the decomposer of the Earth. And so if you've got planet fungus in the wake of this asteroid impact or uh, combination of asteroid impacts and volcanic eruptions – What survives well in the presence of an aggressive, fungus-dominated biosphere? Well, apparently mammals in their warm blood do a lot better at protecting their bodies from fungal infection than, say, cold-blooded reptiles do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And another key part of that, too, is not only is the post-KT extinction uh, world a, a world full of dead things, it's also a world in which the sky is darkened uh, by the ash clouds of, the, of what was probably a near-Earth object impact.
0: Right. I guess that that's what causes the dead things to begin with. So I think the, the mm-hmm. commonly assumed cascade is there's impact that darkens the skies, which, which limits the amount of sunlight available to the primary producers, such as plants, so they... They all die off. The animals that eat the plants can't get enough food, so they start to die off. The animals that eat those animals can't get enough food, so they start to die off. And it's this trophic cascade of death creating a just, you know, a, an amazing buffet for the fungus of the earth. <laughs> so uh, th- this particular
1: paper that looked into this uh, 2019 study, uh, again, just really driving home how much of our lichen, like really exciting lichen work is happening right now. And and uh, as, I'll, as I'll touch on, too, like this is a study that couldn't have taken place just 10 years ago. But this study was from the Field Museum, um, uh, Cassettes Art University, Brigham Young University, and Academia Sinica, And uh, they looked into this question. The, the lead author was Jin Pang Huang, who I referenced earlier. I read a quote uh, from him, mm-hmm. a, a former postdoctoral researcher at the Field Museum in Chicago. And so the idea here is, yeah, like we've been discussing, KT extinction event occurs. Wipes out the non-avian dinosaurs, but also plenty of other organisms as well. A lot of early birds. Um, that they have that ash rising up into the sky, blocking out the sun. So photosynthetic organisms also suffered. Plant life was devastated on Earth. So Hwang was curious about the lichen. Uh, he and his team, they suspected that lichen would have suffered as well, given their relationship with the sun. Again, that's part of lichen's whole thing is that they have the fungal element, but then they have the the algae that uh, that are also that are I mean, that are capable of photosynthesis. But it comes back to the dual nature of lichen, right? Because there uh, you know, there's the photosynthetic aspect of, of the um, of, of the life forms uh, that are good, that would presumably suffer in this world. But then there's the fungal aspects that uh, that might thrive. Um, so uh, anyway, they decided to look into this Uh uh, f- I, we've already touched on the fact that fossil records show an increase in fungal s'mores at this time. We know that fungus was, was getting to run amok uh, post-KT extinction event. This is planet mold. You have planet mold. But when it comes to lichen, again, lichen fossils are not common enough to really prop up a study like this. So most of this was based on modern lichen DNA. It involved identifying the mutation rate in species, determining common ancestors, and they used a program to sort through these large molecular data sets. And this is what uh, Huang points out as being just something that wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago and all of this is also backed up by what fossil evidence we do have and um, uh, and this was used to see okay when are we when are we observing branching occurring among the lichen and at least for some lichen families the results of all this point to a
0: boom in lichen populations after sixty six million years ago so that's very interesting so we have genetic evidence or genomic evidence of what was going on with with lichen species diversity in general but we don't necessarily know all the reasons why and there would be some lingering questions right like if if the if plant life is suffering because of decreased access to the sun and so forth wouldn't lichens also be suffering because they're also not getting the the you know the the sunlight for the photosynthesis that makes their carbohydrates But then, of course, you've got this fungus component in a world where fungus is doing well. So, yeah, it makes you wonder about the mechanisms at play. But it looks like at least some species were doing really well and diversifying at this time.
1: Right now, now to be clear, some lichen definitely went extinct, and other lichen seemed, you know, they seemed to be doing okay. You know, they weren't thriving, but they weren't perishing. But interestingly enough, you did have these families that thrived. Um, now, Wong points to the fact that some lichens grow sophisticated three D structures like plant leaves, and therefore, it could have been these species, he argues, that filled the niches of the plants that died out. So you have widespread uh, uh, plant Mm. devastation that that creates an opportunity for certain savvy composite organisms to rise up and
0: fill the void. That's really interesting. So maybe after the dust clears, whatever's left uh, might involve a lot of lichens that suddenly have new opportunities to, say, access sunlight, whereas previously there would have been plant cover blocking them or something.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think so. But again, like you said, this is an area, this, this very new state, 2019. A lot of work still remains here. Uh, but it is, uh, it, it is interesting you to think back on this post-extinction uh, age and imagine, uh, you know, at, at its own pace, the lichen uh, taking over alongside the mold. Yeah. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more lichen.
0: All right, we're back. So to finish out here today, I wanted to talk briefly about a paper that I will admit caught my attention mainly just because it's brand new. It came out this summer, and I was looking for recent lichen research, and also because of a punny title. Uh, but it actually turned out to be very weird and interesting. So the paper I want to talk about was published in the journal Symbiosis in July 2020 by uh, Lucia Mugia Polonosalar. Armando Azua Bustos and Carlos Gonzalez Silva, Martin Grube, and Nina Gunde Zimmerman. And it is called The Beauty and the Yeast Can the Microalgae Dunaliella Form a Borderline Lichen with Hortea Vernecii? Uh, so the authors here point out that, of course, symbiotic relationships often allow organisms to survive in environments where they wouldn't be able to survive and proliferate, at least not as well, if they were on their own. And lichens are, of course, an example of this. You'll find lichen thriving in environments where the the mycobiont and the photobiont alone would face extreme challenges. But the question is, how do these relationships evolve in the first place? What gets these organisms working together and becoming a composite, becoming uh, just a partner within a symbiosis? The authors cite previous studies showing that lichen thalli, meaning the physical structure of the lichen, go back to the lower Devonian, as we were talking about earlier. But there's still a lot we don't know about how these alliances between organisms are formed in their earliest stages. They're surely interacting and forming relationships before they're actually building bodies together. And one place where we can look for clues about the early stages of this evolutionary process is in what are known as borderline lichens, which they define as, quote, species associations showing a high degree of specialization, but without the formation of well-differentiated fungal layers characteristic of true lichens. And one of the organisms that they're studying here really melted my brain. I love this. Uh, It was first described in a study from 2010 by uh, Armando Azua-Bustos, C. Gonzalez-Silva, L. Salas, Ari Palma, and R. Vicuña. And this was a, a study published in the journal Extremophiles in 2010. So the authors of the study describe a newly discovered species of single-celled alga in the genus Dunaliella. Now, normally Dunaliella is a marine algae. They're, they're tolerant of hypersaline conditions. So you salt them like a slug. They don't really care. Uh, the scientific term for the ability to live in really salty conditions is halo tolerance.
1: By the way, don't salt a slug. You'll just uh, make a mess and you'll feel
0: bad afterwards. Oh, yeah. Why, why would you do that? How would you feel if a slug salted you? Yeah. Uh, so uh, Dunaliella is a primary food source for a lot of filter feeders, plankton in the ocean, uh, and a few species can actually be found in freshwater sources, but this genus has always been known as a water-dwelling class of organisms. You find them in the water and almost always in very salty water. Well, the study in 2010 discovered an exception – Here, researchers described a species of Dunaliella found on the walls of a cave in the Atacama Desert of Chile, so one of the driest places in the world. How would the alga be surviving in a desert cave? And at this point, I just want to read a quote from the paper. Quote, On further inspection, we noticed that it grows upon spiderwebs attached to the walls of the entrance twilight transition zone of the cave. This peculiar growth habitat suggests that this Dunaliella species uses air moisture condensing on the spiderweb silk threads as a source of water for doing photosynthesis in the driest desert of the world. This process of adaptation recapitulates the transition that allowed land colonization by primitive plants and shows an unexpected way of expansion of the life habitability range by a microbial species. So, uh, whoa. I mean, (laughs) so many things interesting about this. So you're you're talking about a plant, an alga, that normally lives in the water, now living on land. Of course, it needs uh, sunlight to survive, but it lives in a cave. <laughs> so, how is this going on? Well, it's living on silk from spider web threads, which you know collects moisture from the fog in the air, and then it stays in the twilight transition zone of the cave, so it can still get some sunlight in order to do photosynthesis. This is a this is a real cliffhanger of an organism.
1: Yeah, yeah. Just the, the I mean, it, you know, most of us wouldn't think of uh, you know spider webs in the twilight uh, realm of a cave, uh, and, and and think to ourselves, oh, that's a, that's a great place for some uh, uh, you know a photosynthetic
0: organism to thrive. Uh, it's
1: yeah, it's so strange.
0: Yeah, wow. But that's this nature on the spider webs. So I love this. And anyway, this species is now known as Dunaliella atacamensis. And to come back to this 2020 paper in Symbiosis, the authors note something else about this species of alga. It has been observed cuddling up to some fungus, mm. specifically another halo-tolerant organism, a fungus, a kind of black yeast called uh, Hortacea vernicii. So you would normally, when you look at these uh, in these little dew drops of water that are forming from the silk of a spider web in this cave – You will find small colonies of algae of this species, uh, Atacamensis, in which you will find embedded cells of this black yeast, verniciae. And as far as I can tell, there was no previous evidence that these species were in a symbiotic relationship. They They just appear to be huddling together. And finding organisms in proximity to one another is not necessarily a sign that they're symbiotic. You can think of examples uh, you know, where you might find organisms together but not symbiotic in nature. Uh, think, for example, about uh, different animal species that you might find gathering around a savanna water source to drink. So if you have gazelles and elephants nearby each other drinking water, they're not necessarily in a symbiotic relationship with each other. They just happen to be side-by-side side accessing a common resource. Right. And so the question these authors were looking into is, well, can we find any evidence that that these species are actually in a mutualism, that they're providing benefits to one another. And unfortunately, the study encountered problems uh, where they were unable to get the algae to grow properly in vitro. They actually tried a couple of different algae, both uh, Atticomensis and then another one known as D. Salina, which they note is a common inhabitant of saltern brines. And salterns are pools of seawater that can evaporate and leave crystal salt behind. But anyway, so they had these these methodological problems trying to get the algae to grow in the lab. And they discussed several possible reasons for this, including the possibility that the washing process of preparing the algae for in vitro incubation may have removed some kind of vital environmental nutrient. Or, in keeping with the findings that we were talking about earlier from Spreebill and others – it may possibly have removed some other crucial but yet unidentified microorganism partner. Mm. So we still don't know if these organisms are involved in what could be called a borderline lichen relationship or not. The experiment was not able to establish evidence of any mutual benefit provided. But I do want to say I always respect reading research that doesn't come to a conclusion about its central question but still publishes its findings because, for example, discussion of the methodological problems they encountered could be useful for other researchers who were trying to study the same thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I guess it's easy to lose sight of, of the importance of that, especially in uh, sort of headline-driven science consumption. Right? right? You want that, to, especially. We've already touched on some 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 studies that definitely hit that chord.
0: Totally. So the question remains about these species in particular, but I think this uh, this is one fascinating picture of how the symbiotic relationships that create lichen could potentially first evolve. You have two tiny organisms clinging to one another for drops of fog dew collecting in a spider's <laughs> web in a cave against the water-starved desert. Uh, and perhaps eventually in these harsh conditions, they could come to appreciate what they can do for one another in an evolutionary sense. But we, we don't always know how it happens. And th- that's hammered home by another quote uh, that was cited in Ed Yong's article that was from a researcher from the University of Exeter named Nick Talbot, who's talking about lichen. And Talbot says, quote, If the right combination meet together on a rock or twig, then a lichen will form, and this will result in a large and complex plant-like organism that we see on trees and rocks very commonly. The mechanism by which this symbiotic association occurs is completely unknown and remains a real mystery. Wow. I love it. I mean, so it happens in nature all the time. We see it all over the world, but it's it seems to be kind of scattershot as to whether we can recreate it in lab conditions or what all is needed to make the relationship work.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's such a fascinating topic. Again, um, lichen are just so much more mysterious uh, and, and, and beautiful and complex, and we often give them credit. Um, I know during this trying time, those of us who do have access to nature have, uh, you know, have probably been taking more nature walks. I know just based on my own family's activities and on various friends that I, uh, you know, say follow on, on Instagram, I know I've noticed a lot of people exploring their, their natural world a little bit more, uh, getting into perhaps, uh, uh, you know, the chronicling mushrooms uh, in their area. Mushroom hunting uh, can, can be a great deal of fun. But lichen hunting, lichen uh, hunting. Also, something I think it's on the table right now. Go out, uh, look for the lichen. Um, you know, observe the lichen. Heck, heck! If you want to take some photos of lichen and share them with us, uh, please do so. We'll t- we'll tell you where you can email us here in a bit. But also, we have the uh, we have the old Facebook group, uh, the discussion module, the stuff to blow your mind discussion module. That's it Seems like a perfect place to drop some lichen photos.
0: Yeah. Also, Frankenstein up your own lichen. See if you can do it. Can you incubate, get some algae and some fungus together and just throw them into the mix, see what happens?
1: Yeah, it's a good beginner level <laughs> <laughs> lichen experiment for your uh, your quarantine days. It probably won't work, but, you know, it's always <laughs> worth a try. All right. Well, there you have it. Um, as always, uh, you know, you can find our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, that goes without saying, right? Uh, wherever that happens to be. If there's a way to rate us, to review us, uh, to give us uh, a nice uh, you know, smattering of stars, uh, we'd appreciate that. That helps the show out, uh, allegedly. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you just have some wonderful lichen uh, experiences, some lichen sightings, or even better, if you have lichen expertise, are you a... Are you are you a lichen hunter, an amateur lichen hunter? Are you yourself a lichenologist? Well, then we would love to hear from you.
0: Of course. Uh, now, we always want to say a huge thank you to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. But if you do want to get in touch with us, you can email us, as always, at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. you.